had the privilege this week, and uh, it, it just worked out this way. I, I called Dr. Biles a couple weeks ago and asked him if, if there was a, he had a little bit of time where we could just get together. And so we had lunch Friday. Well, it just so happened, of course, if you know Darren, is he's a really good friend of mine. We go back all the way to 1985 uh, when we first met in the, the dormitory at, at Jennings uh, at Howard Payne University as incoming freshman. And he and I have remained friends since that day. Well, the Lord had blessed him with the ability to go straight through school and get his PhD in Old Testament. So here I am on Friday thinking, how in the world am I going to preach Genesis 2? And I've got Dr. Biles sitting in front of me. So praise God for his timing and his wisdom. Uh, a good bit of the foundation of today's message, uh, at least some of the, the structure of today's message, comes from uh, a sermon structure that he published on PreachingSource.com. So I have to give him credit for that. Now, he preached Genesis 2 in two sermons. So it's going to be a while before we get through all of that. No, I certainly understand we won't get through all of Genesis uh, or all of his two messages. I just want to give him credit because he is a tremendous friend and a blessing to my ministry and to my life and has been for a long time. And, and uh, he helped at least give me some a little bit more direction as I as I sorted through these issues. One of the things that I just want to start out with as uh, as we work through Genesis 2 is we, we dealt with this a little bit two weeks ago, uh, the timing of Genesis, whether you see Genesis as uh, uh, the creation story as 24-hour literal days, uh, whether you see those as periods of time, or whether you see it allegorical. Uh, I tend to lean toward a more literal reading of Genesis 2 or Genesis 1 and 2, though I don't hold too tightly to that because I understand that the type of literature from of Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 11, I'm, I'm reading through scripture right now. So I've, I've read through Genesis 1 through 11, read Job, and now I'm in Genesis 39. And so I've just read through Genesis. And, and anybody that reads through Genesis, you're very aware that when you get to Genesis chapter 12, it reads a whole lot more historically than Genesis 1 through 11. And so I, I don't want to hold too tight to that grip because the, the purpose, and we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, of Genesis in particular, but all of Scripture is to tell us God's story, not our story. And, and he didn't necessarily give us all of the details that we might want to know. And so Genesis 1 through 7, for instance, covers literally several thousand years if you take a, a chronological timeline. And so we, we have to uh, uh, just, just hold loosely to that. But one of the things that Dr. Biles pointed out is that when you come to chapter 2, verse 4, there's some language here in the Hebrew text that at least gives you a hint that uh, we're beginning to look at generations in a different way. In Genesis 1, 4, there is a, a Hebrew word, toledot, that is translated here. These are the records okay, or these are the generations, depending on which version you have, that word you will find scattered throughout Genesis, and it forms a basic outline of Genesis for you. Genesis is divided up in a very real way by the generations of, of Adam and Eve, or the generations of, of Abraham, the generations that followed Isaac, uh, the generations of Ishmael. And, and so you can look for that, that term, and it forms somewhat of an outline, a breakdown for Genesis for you. 
that term didn't appear in Genesis chapter one. And so he, you have this broad view of the creation story of the first seven days. And then it looks as though the way that he uses the, the Hebrew word yom here at the, the middle of chapter two, when he says at that time is our, our um, translation. It, it may be translated in the day in some places that he's narrowed down and he's going to give us a picture of all of this beauty as he creates man and, and names the animals. We're going we're to read it here in just a moment, but I want to give you this up front. And it may very well be that when you come to Genesis 6, it is just a very, very, very long day. Whether all this happened in 24 hours or not, the way the word is used in context in, in verse 4 suggests that this may be a longer period of time than 24 hours. And so I, I, I share that with you just to, to let you know where we're headed, but I do believe that this focus of Genesis chapter 2 is, is a, a more detailed picture of day 6 of creation. Let's read it together. We're going to break our reading up into two parts. We're going to read Genesis 2, 4 through 17. We're going to pause there and look at the first half of the, 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 the primary part of this message. Then we'll begin a later in verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter and look at the second half. The scripture says, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord had not made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the, from the ground and breathed the breath of life in his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows from the, the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. And Bedellium and Onyx were there also. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The land of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden and to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. We're going to pause there because what we see in the first half of Genesis 2, really beginning there in verse 4 today, is God's creation of man and his purpose for man. And, and, and there's some beauty just in this text that I want you to, to, to understand. First of all, in the first five verses or so, there from verses uh, verse 4 through verse 7, so the first four verses, you see this detailed of, of, uh, look at the creation of man. And there's a, a couple things, and we've got a lot to cover today, so we may move through things that might seem pretty quickly. But a couple things here about man's origin that I want you to understand. First of all is man was created by God. 
We are his creation. We're not an accident. We're, we're not uh, uh, some extended part of some uh, unnatural or, or, or just natural process of, of atoms coming together or atoms expanding throughout the universe. Man was created by God. I, I'm tempted to spend a lot of time here, and, and I spent a little bit of time here in our, our uh, growth group this morning as I was getting it started, it just as a reminder that, that even the, the function of a single cell organism, there are several things that have to take place at, at, at one time that, that have to all be operational for a single cell organism to live. And certainly the complexity of, a, of the human body that is such that we, are, we were made up of so many different systems that if any one of those systems does not work, there is not life. You, you cannot have a, a, a functioning heart if your central nervous system is also not functioning, or if your, uh, if your pulmonary system is also not functioning. And so the human being is made up of, of, of multiple complex of systems, and every one of those systems is dependent upon chemistry and biology down to the, the microscopic level. And all of that has to, has to happen at once for it to for it to work, you can't have a heart stop, start to beating where all of a sudden there's a heart over here beating on its own all by itself without the blood vessels in place or without the, the, the nervous system in place. All of it has to function together. And so uh, even when you look at the smallest organisms of life, there's, there's several things that have to take place within a cell for it to all function at once. It doesn't make sense for that to evolve or over a period of time where, where one part would start working and then another part would start working and then another part would start working. That's just not how life happens. And so when we look at Scripture and we see God's detailing, him, him having Moses write down, record the, the creation of man, we see the beauty of man being created by God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, decided to create man. And you see that uh, in verse 7, the Lord formed man out of, uh, from the dust of the ground. I, believe that, I don't believe this is metaphorical. I believe that God, after he had created the heavens and the earth, he'd created the, the oceans and the, 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 the plants and the animals, he creates man. He forms man out of the dust of the ground. But there was no life in man, in that body that he had formed until God breathed his life into man's nostrils. Life comes from God. Life in all of its complexity, life in all of its beauty and all of its glory comes from God who breathed life into man. You see this, this word breathed used in several places throughout Scripture. You see it used in, in Ezekiel 37 when uh, God gives Ezekiel the vision of the valley of dry bones. And, and, and he's given Ezekiel this image so that he'll understand that the God who gives life can also resurrect and bring revival to a nation and bring revival to a people. And, and the exact same word is used there when Ezekiel looks out across this valley of dry bones and God commands him to breathe life into those bones. And when he does, 
The scripture says, God breathed the breath upon those bones and they rose up. Our life is dependent upon the breath of God. You've heard me say it this way before. God does not have to take your life from you. God doesn't have to take my life from me. If God chose not to give me breath tomorrow, I would not be alive. We are dependent fully upon God for life. Life is a gift from God. You know, one of the the immediate applications that when you realize the beauty, the majesty, the glory, the power of God is to not take life lightly. There's all kinds of implications of that. Implications of how we take care of the bodies that God's given us, the spirit that God's given us, the soul that God's given us. They're all a gift from a mighty, powerful God who loves us. You see man's origin, God's creation of man. Then you see God's gift of the garden. The the Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. Let let me point something out here that I learned from Dr. Biles this week. This is not the, 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 the garden of Eden. Eden is not the garden. The garden was in a larger place called Eden. In Eden, God placed a particular beautiful gift for Adam to live. He, he developed, he, he, he created this place, a garden that was in Eden, and it was in the east. And then he placed the man that he had formed. He took Adam and he said, look, I, I created this place for you. It's a beautiful place. It's full of, of waters. It's full of, of every tree. It's full of everything that you'd want to eat. You can fill your stomach all that you want. You can find sustenance. You can find joy. You can find peace here in this garden. He created a perfect place, this garden in Eden, and he placed Adam there. What, what a beautiful gift God gave Adam, a place that not only was a it had everything that Adam needed. All of his provision was there. Adam wouldn't have to go anywhere else. Everything he needed, he was going to be able to find there in the garden that God had placed him. And what a great home to dwell in. You know, God has given each of us a place. He has provided for us a home. Those of us that have been blessed and fortunate enough to be born in the United States of America, God has blessed us with the country and the nation that we live in. It's filled with, with freedom. It, 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 we have all types of, of blessings, of, of natural resources. And, you know, Susan and I have, have been privileged over the years since we've been married. I, I was going back over this some yesterday. Uh, we've, been, we've been blessed to be able to visit every one of the 50 states of these United States. And we hadn't been everywhere. We hadn't been every city, but we've been able to go to every state. And, and to see the beauty and the breadth and the glory of just what God's created right here. What a home God's given us. When, when, you, when, you, when you have fresh, clean, running water and you have clear skies, you have abundance of wildlife and, and, and plenty, plenty fields to grow crops. God has blessed us. God gave Adam, though, the very best in the garden. But even beyond the provision that God gave Adam in the garden, God gave Adam his presence. 
God was present with Adam in the garden regularly. Now here we see God working with Adam, God teaching Adam, God, God helping Adam as he brings the animals before him so he can name them. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but, but all of that, God's there with Adam in the garden. So not only was he provided for, he had the presence of God in the garden. What more would we want to be able to live in the presence of God in the most beautiful place that he'd created with everything that we needed to sustain us and provide for us? So you see God's gift of the garden here in verse 15, you find men's purpose in the garden. Now, I, I want you to see this because there is a beauty in this that goes deeper than, than is on the surface. Verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden to work it and to watch over it. You know, there's one thing about the fact that God created us in his image is that we need purpose in life. We, we need something to, to, to invest in, something to do, something to, we, we need work. You know, I've, uh, uh, this, this week, I, I got caught up, uh, you know, watching Facebook reels and Instagram reels. I mean, it, that's the thing now. I mean, Facebook and Instagram know that. And, and what I ended up watching were a lot of these reels of, border collies doing their job those dogs are absolutely incredible and amazing one of the first ones i come across is is the guy's driving out through his field in scotland and and the border collies are going he's driving 30 miles an hour and the border collies are out running him those dogs are fast they're absolutely incredible but beyond that they're they're so incredibly intelligent He'll give a, a one or two word command and the border collie would jump off of his four wheeler and it would go round up a hundred sheep and bring those sheep right into the pen. And it's just amazing to watch. And, and you could tell those collies were happiest when they were doing their job, when they were doing what they were trained to do. And you'll hear uh, and you'll read. If, if, if When you read about getting a pet, there'll be warnings about don't get a border collie. Don't get a working dog if you don't have something for that dog to do. Because if you get a shepherd of any type, a dog that is trained and built to be a shepherd, and you expect it to lay in the house and be quiet and not tear up stuff, that you're going to be solely mistaken. As you're going you're gonna to come home and you're going to find stuff all over the place. Working dogs are created to work. Here's the truth that we see in God's Word here. God created us to do what he does, to be creative, to work. God had just created the heavens and the earth, and now he makes man in his image, and he placed Adam in the garden, and he says, Adam, I'm going to give you a job to do. Your job, Adam, is to work in the garden and to watch over it. You have this incredible responsibility, and you have this privilege. You, you get to live here. You get to dwell here. But more than that, I, I'm giving you purpose. I'm giving you a job. I, I'm giving you meaning to life. You're to, to work, to rule, to reign, to, 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 to take care of this incredible, beautiful place that I've given you. And so one of the things that we learn here is that God has given man purpose in our lives. And that purpose is work. We were not created to lay on the couch and watch TV. And 
And as a pastor who has counseled people, I, I can tell you right off the bat, if, if you are not finding your purpose and fulfilling your purpose, you're going to be miserable. You want to find people who are depressed? Find somebody who doesn't have work to do, who doesn't have purpose and doesn't have meaning, meaning that they can be about fulfilling. Find someone who's recently retired that doesn't know what they're going to do next, and you'll see them struggling, okay? God has created us with purpose. And notice that work for Adam was not a consequence of the fall. Toil in his work, hardship in his work was a consequence of sin, but work gave him purpose and meaning in life. He gave him a reason to get up every day. He got up, he walked with the Lord, he went about his business tent in the garden. But what a beautiful picture we have here of how God created us in his image, you know, in, in a way that, that brings him glory. And so when we work like God works, when we're, we're faithful and we're meticulous and, and we take care of what God's given us to take care of, we give glory to God. God is glorified when we work among all of the things that he has given us. So as we complete our work, we're bringing God honor and we're bringing God glory. Man's purpose is found in, in fulfilling the job that God has set before him. And you see in this man's expectation. Here's the bottom line. Here's the expectation. Okay, Adam, I've given you all of these gifts. I've given you life. I've given you a perfect place to live. You have my presence. You have my provision. You have purpose in your life. I've blessed you with all of this. Now, you still have a choice. Man's expectation or God's expectation of man was that he obeyed. Follow God's instructions. Here's the instructions. Do what I've told you to do. You're going to be happy. You're going to be blessed. You're going to get to live here. You're going to live forever. You're not going to die. Or don't follow my instructions. But if you don't follow my instructions, or when, as a more accurate way of translating this text, when you look at verse 16, when you don't follow my instructions, you will surely die. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Once again, that, that word that's used there in that context, on that day, it doesn't mean that Adam died that day, but it does mean that a process of death began because up to that point, Adam and Eve had a tree that they could eat from in the garden called the tree of life. And with that tree of life, there was no aging. They were going to live forever. But the day that they disobeyed God, they had to be removed from his presence. And thus they were removed from the, the tree of life. They were taken out of the garden and they were, they were placed outside of it. And the death process started. God gave Adam and Eve a clear set of instructions. And he chose not to follow if I'm going to give application here to just this first half of the sermon, the, and I want you to hear this, life is a gift from God to be valued. A man is given a choice. We get to choose life or death. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. Then read with me verses 18 through 25. 
Because just as God gave man purpose and all of these bountiful gifts as he created man, he also had a plan for man and procreation. He had a, had a, had a plan for man going forward. Uh, before I go there, let me hear this. In verse 17, God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin. That's why in that text, you see the scripture say, on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. He didn't say if you eat of it. He said on the day you eat of it. God knew that by giving Adam and Eve a choice, that somewhere down the road, they were going to choose wrongly. So read with me verse 18 and following. And then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the sky, and brought each to man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man. And he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Here in verses 18 through 25, you, you see God's plan for propagating the human race. And, and, and at its very core is God's plan for marriage. They don't have any children yet. Uh, they, they don't have any other uh, uh, siblings or ancestors. You have Adam and Eve, and God has given them this plan. I want to note a couple things out of this before we get to kind of three big issues of why it matters. The first one is this. This is the only time in creation. You look in verse 18. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good. It is not good to be alone. It's the first time that you see God look at his creation and say something's not good. And what is it that's not good? It's to be alone. Now, this is not a command to marry, but it is a picture of God's design for human beings to be in relationship. I want you to notice something else, because we've just pointed out and when man eats of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he will be expelled from the garden, and he will no longer be able to dwell in the presence of God. So there's coming a time, God knows there's coming a time, that man is going to be outside of his presence. It is not good for man to be alone. So God creates the perfect complement. One, the word that, that is translated here in, in our uh, Christian Standard Bible is there was no helper found corresponding to him. The word, the idea there is suitable or corresponding or a match where the two, though they're unique, they can come together as one. And you see that word appear a couple times in this text. God created for Adam someone who was corresponding to him. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment because I want to put in a plug for our couples conference. Uh, one of the things that, that, that Tony and Vanessa are going to be addressing, uh, especially in their first session, is biblical complementarianism. Now, I'm going to ask you the, the, the question, how many of you in here are complementarians? I know, Sharon, I know you are. You can raise your hand. 
How many of you don't know what the heck I'm talking about? Okay, you need to come to the couples conference because you're going to learn scripturally what, what biblical complementarianism is. Complementarianism is the idea that God didn't create man and woman the same. He created male and female both in his image, but he created them unique and differently in a way that they're to complement one another. They'll have different roles in the, within a marriage relationship. They'll have different uh, unique things that they bring to a marriage relationship. They complement one another. Now, now, very clearly, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to figure out that man and woman complement each other in procreation, right? I have never seen a man able to carry a child in his womb because a man doesn't have one. Now, are we live in a culture right now that would argue with you about that. But that's a lie from Satan, and we dealt with that two weeks ago. God created human beings, male and female, and we are brought together to complement one another. We're not going to get into to all of the, the, the theological issues behind that, but Tony and Vanessa will. They'll dig into some of that for you as we look at biblical complementarianism and how God has created us to be one flesh and to bring us together where we complement one another both in, in emotional and physical and spiritual ways. And so I've said this before. Some of you look at your marriage and you go, well, you know, I'm, my marriage is in great shape. If you have a perfect marriage, please come because you can help some of the rest of us in the breakout sessions. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm in my golden years. I've already been married 50 years. And I don't know how many I have left. So uh, I don't know that I'd be very helpful. Yes. If you've been married 50 years, you've got something to, to communicate to some of our, our students who will be there who are in serious dating relationships or considering marriage. So wherever you are in the spectrum, I want to I encourage you to, to sign up and be a part of, of this couple's retreat because I think that it's going to be a great thing for our church. And I don't think there's any accident that, that God had us doing our first couple's retreat right after I preached on Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 because God, in his wisdom, he understands where our families are and where our marriages are. The, the, the conflict and the issues of, of family and marriage in our culture how our families have been destroyed and wiped out and the understanding of what marriage is, even the understanding of what male and female has been brought into doubt in our culture in the last decade. The family, the marriage between husband and wife is the foundation of a family. It's the foundation of a church. It's the foundation of a community. It's the foundation of a culture. And when our families fail to fulfill the purpose of God, we'll never be able to fulfill his purpose as a culture. God created for Adam someone who was a perfect complement for him. And, and he, he created her from the, the rib out of his side. What, what a beautiful picture. The first surgery in all of history was done by God. I don't know what anesthesia he used, but he put Adam in a pretty deep sleep, all right, so that he could cut him open, take out a rib, and sew him back up. And out of that rib, he created woman. Now, could God have created Eve from the dust of the ground? Absolutely. But I believe God created Eve from Adam's rib for a very particular purpose or purposes. 
They, they, they are one. They're bone of bone, flesh of flesh. God created man and woman to, to come together in a unique, intimate relationship in a marriage that cannot be found anywhere else. And it's interesting here that, that God tells Adam that this is why. So the, the, the purpose of the fact that you're bone of bone and flesh of flesh, the reason for that is so that you'll leave your father and mother and be bound to your wife. Interesting uh, that God gives that command. That command was not for Adam, okay? Adam didn't have a father and mother. He didn't need to be told to leave his father and mother. That command is given for future generations for us to understand the unique character of marriage. When we come together in a, in a husband-wife relationship, there's a bond that's created there in a new family that is launched that, that has to have a separation from mom and dad. And, and there's this command to do it publicly. Marriage should be a public event, not something done in secret, because it's, it's something that, that everyone will see when man and woman go together and make this public commitment to one another. What a beautiful picture of marriage that God gives us here with Adam and Eve. A little bit more depth here, we see a, a part of the purpose of man, you see as God brings the animals before Adam to name all of the, the, the animals and all of the creatures and all of the plants. That's a picture of God's uh, dominion, his authority that he's given man over the things of this earth. When we're, as, as man's created in God's image, we are created differently than a dog or a cat or uh, as much as much as I love my dog, as much as we love our pets, they're not human. Dogs are not people, right? We've already said men are not women, women are not men. Dogs are not people, people are not wildlife. We live in a culture that demeans the value of the human and it elevates the value of other things in creation. And yet God in his order gave men and women dominion over the earth. When we read Psalm 8 and David asked that tough question, who is man that you even care about him? And he goes on to say in verse 5, yet you made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. That's a part of us being image bearers. God has created us to care for not rule over in an authoritarian way any more than God rules over us in an authoritarian way. God loves us, and so he's given us that, that, that job to, to reign and to rule over all of creation in a loving, caring way. God created Adam and Eve and brought them together and gave them this purpose in marriage. He did not give Adam someone who was just exactly like him. He gave him someone who was complimenting, complimentary, to him, corresponding to him. There's purpose and meaning in that. Why does all of this matter? The creation stories, Genesis chapter 2. What does that matter to me? Let me give you a couple things. First of all, it matters because this is how we are designed. We're designed to walk with God to trust God for our provision. We're designed to obey God, to walk in a relationship with God. We're designed 
not commanded to be married. Okay. I want to be careful there. Scripture tells us that some people God's given the gift of singleness. I, I mentioned it two weeks ago. If, if you could only bear the image of God or you could only fulfill his purpose through marriage, then Jesus and Paul failed miserably. Okay. Jesus never got married. Paul never got married. So marriage is not required to fulfill the purposes of God, but if you marry, you must marry according to God's design. God didn't design man to marry man and woman to marry woman. God designed male and female and brought them together in a way that they complement one another. That's how we're designed. Why does it matter? It's because it's what God said. His word teaches us that we were created in a particular way. His word teaches us that we were created with purpose. God said, I, I brought Adam and Eve together. I brought male and female together. God said you're to leave your father and mother and be united and joined to your wife. God said that you're, become, you're to become one flesh. God said that you're to procreate. Why does it matter? Because God says so. And if we purposely disobey the instructions of God, we're choosing death over life. Just as Adam and Eve did when they purposely disobeyed the instructions of God. Third, why does it matter? Because it brings true satisfaction to the human. The God who created you with a particular design and the God who created you with a particular purpose is a God who knows what truly will make you happy. When I say happy, that, that, that seems like a, a lightweight term. He'll, he, he, God, God knows what will bring you fulfillment and joy in life. Satan knows that we like shiny things sometimes. And he'll cast every kind of bait in front of us and try to lure us away from God's purpose and God's design and say, try this, try this, try this, it'll make you happy. But when Satan throws that lure in front of you, it always has a hook. And it always leads to death. He may throw a, a, a lure of adultery in front of you. He may throw a lure of, of illicit sexuality in front of you. He may throw a lure of laziness in front of you. And say, oh, you don't need to work. Why don't you just steal for, for what you need? Satan will throw all kinds of things in our pathway to try to lure us to him, but you will never find satisfaction outside of God's purpose because God designed you. God has a plan, and to fulfill God's purpose, you must obey his instruction. It, it, God's plan will 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 fulfill his purpose of, of intimacy that every one of us desires with another human being. God's purpose will, will connect us with a perfect complement to us. God's plan and God's purpose is also one that will avoid shame. I believe that this passage here at the, the, the end of verse 25 it is a foretelling it's a looking ahead to what happens in the next chapter both man and his wife were naked and felt no shame there was no shame in the intimate relationship between adam and eve god had brought them together god had created them god designed them god god purposed it and there was no shame 
when we disobey God's destruction or God's instructions, we walk in shame. That's when we're ashamed. God's design, God's plan, God's purpose, God's instruction will bring fulfillment that can't be found anywhere else, bring satisfaction to the human life that can't be found anywhere else. And that even includes the work that he's given us to do in his creation. Finally, God's desire is that we dwell in his presence, fulfill our purpose of bringing him glory, and enjoy God's prosperity. And Adam and Eve had all of that bounty. They had the presence of God. They had the provision of God. They were able to do what God had called them to do and give glory back to God right up until the day they disobeyed and brought the penalty of sin and death upon themselves and eventually upon the rest of us. The good news is still the good news. The same God who created Adam and Eve, who was there in the very beginning, had a plan from the very beginning to redeem us. No matter how far we have fallen, or no matter how far we have run from the purposes and plans of God, there's still hope of redemption and restoration. But that hope only comes from the same God who created us in the first place. I ended the message, I ended the service two weeks ago with this text. I'm going to do the same thing today. When we finish Genesis chapter 11, right after Easter, I'm going to preach through the book of Colossians. Because Colossians is an answer to the mess that we made and that we'll see Abraham's family and Noah's family and all those other families, the mess they made. Colossians is an answer. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son that he loves. In him, we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, as is expressed in your evil actions, but now he's reconciled you by his physical body through his death. The same God who was present at creation the same God who created the heavens and the earth, the same God who created you and me and every man and woman in his image, the same God who gave us purpose, who had a plan for our relationships, who had a plan to propagate the species through marriage, that same God whom we rebelled against and sinned against went to the cross and shed his blood so that we could be restored into a relationship with him so that we could be redeemed, so that we could have 
purpose again, so that we could have a fresh start, so that we could have a new life. In Christ, through faith, you have the privilege and the ability to once again display the glory of God in your own self. Not, not by your strength, but by his strength. Not by your power, but by his power. Christ in you, Paul's going to go on to say in the next few verses in Colossians 1, Christ in you is the hope of glory. So Christians, the God who, who created you, who has seen you mess up, knew ahead of time you were going to mess up, and prepared a way for you to display his glory. If, you've, if you're not a Christian, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, and Genesis seems hopeless because of the sin of Adam and Eve, Genesis is a book of hope. Genesis, Genesis just lays the foundation to remind us that it all came from God in the first place. He's the creator, and that same creator is the one who sent his son to die on a cross. And when I, when I use those terms, I, I tend to use them interchangeably because Scripture here says that Christ was a part of creation. You can't separate the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at creation any more than you can separate the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit at the cross. God answered our failure in Jesus. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.